know is a tricky word in theater entertainment. I don't like, I don't love saying it. Most of these things wouldn't be issues if the staff at all levels was more diverse. I don't know, if you're good-natured, if you're ready and willing to open up, bend your mind a little bit, you got this. I hate all of it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Anna Aguilera. On this episode, we will be talking to Elizabeth Itup and Kevin McCoy about sound. Kevin McCoy is currently the head of audio for Hamilton and Peggy Company, currently in San Francisco. And Alicia is a composer, sound designer, and audio producer currently based out of New York. Hello, guys, and welcome to the show. Hello. Hey. We're very excited to have both of you here, and uh, we want to each of you to begin with by introducing yourselves and what you do for a living so we know who does what. I'm going to start. I'm going to start. My name is Alicia Itu. Yeah, I'm a sound designer. I'm a composer. I'm an audio producer. I'm based in New York before everything. <laughs> I was traveling a lot. Uh, I did some uh, shows here in New York, but I mean, honestly, I was on the road maybe 60% of the time. This past year, you know, I found myself in working on shows in San Francisco, in Baltimore, in Denver. There are others that I'm blanking on, but a lot of my job has me on the road. And yeah, I also do a lot of shows in New York City. I tend to do what are called straight plays. They are plays that they are not musicals necessarily. I definitely do plays that have live music in them, but I don't do, uh, typically don't do musicals that call for big live sound reinforcement. And then also I'm working a lot in the world of podcast and radio. I started off with NPR StoryCorps as their podcast producer. And then from there, I'm an audio producer for hire. I'm a freelancer there as well. Uh, and so I've been producing podcasts. I edit podcasts. I uh, write original music for them. During uh, pandemic times, I've also found myself doing some work for like some newspapers, uh, some audio work for newspapers, and uh, a sort of a documentary project. So that's what kind of what's keeping me busy at the moment. Wow, that sounds busy all round. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've been keeping busy. Also during the pandemic, I had a baby, so <laughs> yeah, busy-ish. <laughs> That's wonderful. And Kevin, tell us about you. Uh, sure, uh, I'm Kevin McCoy. I'm a sound mixer. I, I tend to mix for touring productions of large-scale musical theater. For the last uh, year and a half, I've been the head of audio and the primary mixer for the and Peggy Company of Hamilton, based in San Francisco. We're also a tour, so we'll eventually go on tour. I have been someone who tours for over 15 years. Uh, I've toured with a, a lot of different musicals and a lot of family entertainment. I started out in family entertainment with Sesame Street Live and shows like that, and then progressed into large-scale musical theater with uh, Mamma Mia. I've toured with Motown, once Memphis, and like I said, now I'm on Hamilton. I have worked 
as an A2, which is the assistant audio for the tour where I deal with wireless microphones and also mix. And now I'm the A1 or the head of audio where I primarily mix and I cycle with the A2 for the show and, and work also on, on the wireless microphones. But my primary job is mixing and maintaining the sound system. That's it. And, and uh, you know, in the pandemic time, I haven't been able to work. I, I haven't had any projects. So I've been doing a lot of uh, online learning and that sort of thing. Since you already started mentioning what you do, Kevin, what really is a sound engineer? I mean, sound engineer, I feel like is a little bit, little bit of a loaded term. Engineer has a lot of connotation around the world. So I actually will often say that I'm a mixer or uh, I'm the head of audio just to clarify that I'm not, I'm not a licensed engineer or anything like that. The term has a different context in different places. So as a mixer, and as, as the head of audio for a tour, my jobs are to maintain the sound system in terms of equipment and, and dealing with repairs and logistics of, of repairs and that sort of thing. And also to run the local crew that we hire to install the sound system in uh, various theaters as we move the show. And then also to mix the show, which is live sound, especially in, in large-scale musical theater. Mixing the show is, is a, an extremely active process, and um, you, you participate in the show sort of like a musician would, with doing active changes in volumes and turning on and off microphones the entire show, for, literally on a line-by-line -line basis. We call it line-by-line -line mixing. Uh, and it's a very active and, and engaged process through the whole show. That's the hardest and most detailed part of my job. And the rest of the stuff is sort of maintaining the system and, and doing sort of management stuff as, as the head of a department. So have you guys worked together or crossed paths in terms of your jobs? And, and if so, how did you work together? We've never worked together, but we have crossed paths. It was on Go Diego Go. That's how we met. Yeah, because we, I, was, I was dating someone at the time who was the mix engineer. And so where were we? Did we meet in Virginia? Somewhere on the East Coast. I don't remember where it was, but yes. And you were pleasant enough. <laughs> I was just going to say, we, we sort of work in, in like just slightly different parts of the industry. So one of the reasons beyond like Alicia was a fantastic personality and, and our banter, which is just really great, is that it's really helpful to, to that, I, that I feel like we maintain a friendship is that it's helpful, for, I think, for each of us to sort of keep contact with the other parts of the industry uh, and just kind of learn how other people are doing things and that sort of thing. That's at least for me, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of wild that we haven't worked together. We get along so well, that'd be pretty cool if we work together someday, but yeah, we've, I mean, since Go Diego Go, we've maintained, we've maintained like a friendship. We talk regularly ish. I feel very aware of like what's going on in your life. But it is, it's a little like, I think some of you are being like, wow, yeah, we haven't worked together. But no, but I think it's really, it's interesting because just describing what, you know, you both do, it seems like the gamut of what people do in sound can be very, very wide. Like, and, and there's many different avenues that you can pursue. And you do some composing as well, right? Alicia Bass, you do composing. So do you, did you start, how did you start? I mean, you started obviously by playing an instrument. What did you play? How did you get into this? Well, <laughs> so my, my, my instrument that I'm, you know, deadly with <laughs> is, uh, it's voice, which there's always like, uh, there's debate over like, is voice really an instrument? It is, 
it is. And I can do some pretty cool things with my voice. Uh, but also, I studied opera and classical voice for a very, very long time. I thought I was going to go down that uh, career path. Uh, and actually, my brother and sister did. They are. They are singers. They are opera and you know, classically trained singers. And I... Yeah. How did I get into this? We're all a family of singers and getting into sound was kind of a fluky accident thing. You know, I got into school for acting. I thought I was going to be a musical theater actor for a while. And then I got accidentally placed in a sound design class. And I kind of, you know, went with the flow and was like, oh my gosh, I actually like this a million times more. I can help people tell stories. I put on headphones and I can manipulate sound and create worlds and that's what sound design is it's world building for me with you know design and original music uh you know i'm world building by with content i am manipulating content to make new content to kind of aid and abet storytelling you know i think what kevin is doing is world building he is like another you know musician another actor when he's mixing he is he is really helping you know, shape the narrative. So I think what overall within sound, sound design, like what we're doing or sound, what we're doing is world building, but how we approach it is very different. Kevin, I liked what you said about your term is a, is a as engineer is a loaded term. I think people just think different things. Yeah. So as a composer, I got started, that was after grad school. It was that person, that person I was dating, Kevin, I was doing a show he was asking me, asking me how Q building was going for that. I was like, you know, I think the, the, the world sounds like this. And I kind of like hummed something. And I was like, but I can't find a piece of music that's like that. And he was like, that was pretty cool. You should, you should do that. And I was like, what? He was like, you should, you should write that out. That should, that should be a thing. And I was like, oh, oh. Uh, from there, you know, I... I didn't tell that director that I'd never composed before. I just composed music and I would present him with cues and go, eh? And he would go, oh, this is beautiful. Could the cello do this thing? And I go, yeah. And then I, I don't know. I didn't know. So then I'd go back and I'd like all night, you know, hammer away at this, like pull my hair going, oh my God, what did I agree to do? I don't know what I'm doing. And then at some point I'd be like, oh wait, yeah, I made the cello do that thing. Okay, so that's something I always tell like young composers, uh, young sound designers, young I mean, young people. You know, just uh, fake it till you make it. You'll you'll get the hang of it. It might take you a couple of shows to like really um, figure out what you're doing. I still learn. I'm learning so much about composition. I learn a lot about sound design to this day. But I don't know if you're good natured, if you're ready and willing to open up, bend your mind a little bit. You got this. What would you say is the difference between composing and sound designing? Uh, difference between composing and sound design. Almost all the times, I'm the sound designer. Only sometimes am I also the composer. Uh, they are two very different jobs in my mind. Let me start back. So with both sound design and composition, I am I'm given a script. I read through the script. Uh, I form my own ideas of what I think this play world is. Then I sit down, I have a coffee with the director, 
I hear from them what they think the play world is. That helps like reinform what I think the play world is. I go back. I start putting together, you know, playlists of what this world might sound like. This is not necessarily like cues of the show. I just want to kind of get a feel of this play world. Director and I kind of back and forth that a little bit. I get some tracks from them. Again, not necessarily sound cues in the show. Then, you know, the design team starts coming in and we start having conversations together. And then we get, you know, into the tech rehearsal process. And I, I tell people like tech is like, absolutely my favorite part of the process it is uh it's a brutal part of the process because the days are really long and the turnaround time is so short but that's where we can really as a team come together and try out all the things we've been you know really smartly talking about now we see if the things are actually working together um and it's just my favorite part of the process now the differences are is that you know with sound design you know i'm with my team, I'm implementing a sound system to play back the content. Um, I said that I don't do a lot of musical theater, but there's still times where I need to do with some live sound reinforcement. I need to mic up, you know, this violinist who is parked on this side of the stage and every now and then like they are playing live for the show or, you know, at this key moment in the show, you know, our four actors have, big reverb on their voices. Um, so my team and I are implementing the bits and pieces to, to make that work. I don't do that as a composer. The, I do not touch the system when I'm the composer, if I'm just the composer. It's all very tricky when I'm both the things. This is where it's very important that I have a great associate on my team and or an assistant. It's Again, I don't do a lot of musical theater these days, but it's great to have a great mix engineer on board to help me navigate what this world sounds like. A lot of times I'm bringing on an A2, a mic engineer, if we have mics on the show. And I know I keep like sort of roundaboutly answering your question. To go back to composition, there I am tasked with writing original music for the show. Sometimes it might also mean teaching the actors to sing the music in the show. Sometimes it might mean if there's another instrument, if there's that violin, a guitar, I'm tasked with, you know, bringing on maybe a music director, someone who's a little smarter than me on the instrument side of things. And together we're, we're teaching the actors like, yeah, how to play through the music. But yeah, sound as a sound designer, I am not creating the original music as the composer. I am. It's so weird to talk about. I'm basically two people when I'm hired to do those things, but I am but one person. Multi-skilled. <laughs> yeah, and I have to remember that, like, if there's a conversation that has to be had before we start the process fully of, remember, everyone, I'm two people. Yeah, I'm doing one job. <laughs> so, Kevin, what's your favorite part about what you do? And, like, what you, how did you get into particularly the sound area of, uh, you know, sound that you are in and, and why did you go down that path? I definitely came into it from, I guess, sort of more of like a practical point of view that uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left school. Uh, I left school without a degree and uh, I just kind of knew that I wanted to do theatre and that I was pretty good at doing sound and I moved to Minneapolis and freelanced there for a little while and figured out that I wanted to tour. I, I, I worked with some people who had been on tour and they told me stories of tour and it sounded 
excellent. So I figured out how to go on tour. I toured with Family Entertainment for quite a while. Doing sound for that sort of thing is a lot more of like a, it's less of an artistic endeavor and more of just sort of a logistical endeavor, setting up the sound system and making, you know, basically making a pre-recorded show or a show with very few live mics louder. And so most of the job was, was just figuring out the logistics of moving that show from city to city. We did a lot of international work with that company. And so we, we moved the show from country to country a lot. I did a lot of, uh, I spent as, as much time figuring out how to load different kinds of trucks as I did figuring out how to do sound. It's part of the job, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. And it remains part of the job. It's just that as I've gone further into doing sound, I think more about the artistic and creative side of doing sound than I, I did back then. And that's what's fascinating because your your stuff has got such a logistical aspect from packing trucks to getting it done as opposed to Alicia Bell, who's more on the creative development phase of it, right? So you're on the execution of it, yeah? There's still like a logistical side to what I'm doing because there's also, I think there's also a very like artsy-fartsy, for lack of a better word, side of what Kevin's doing. Uh, I think what's what's for, the most like forward-facing thing with our jobs though is like, yes, Yes, more content art on my side. Yes, more logistical on Kevin's side. But explain the artistic aspect of your, yours, Kevin. You, you enjoy that as, as well. So how does that play out in your role? So I actually started doing, I switched to doing musical theater from doing family entertainment in 2010. Uh, I was 29 at the time. So I was, I was, you know, well along into my career. And uh, I was hired as the A2 for a tour of Mamma Mia!, and sort of got there without really knowing what the job entailed, other than it was sound, and I did sound, so clearly I should do this sound job. And we set up the show, and I did my A2 stuff, dealing with the wireless microphones and that sort of thing backstage, which uh, you know people helped me figure out, and it was similar enough to the stuff I had been doing that that was fine. I had to go and learn how to mix the show. And up until that point, my experience of mixing a show had been, you know, pushing faders up when actors were on stage and pushing faders up for a pre-recorded playback track. And I went out and watched the show and, and they scheduled like two or three weeks for me to learn how to mix the show. And I was like, this uh, seems excessive, but okay, thanks. And I went out and watched the show get mixed for the first time and it blew my mind. And I was like, oh, this is, this is definitely not what I thought it was. And uh, I also said, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I, I, I was like, I, this looks hard. I, I, I've never done this before. I, I don't know if I can do this. And, you know, the, the A1 there was friendly, but frank. And he was like, this is the job. And if you can't mix the show, then then we need to find someone else. Because, like... No pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to do this. But, you know, he was very supportive and, and helped me learn to do it. And And so it was the first show I mixed. Uh, and I, I've been mixing shows since then, mostly as an A2, uh, up until the last couple of jobs, I have been the A1. So as the A2, you mix sort of as a relief for the, the main mixer. And your job is to is to mix the, sh- the same show that the, that the A1 mixes, and they give you notes so that you can sort of stay in alignment with them. As the A1, you're mixing a show that the sound designer has set for you. So your your job is to interpret the wishes of the sound designer, but you get a little bit more sort of uh, artistic freedom in that you, you're, you know, you're dealing with the changing environment every night of different performers, uh, different audience reactions, but also 
uh, you're dealing with the changing space as you tour a show moving from, moving from city to city. The sound designer doesn't come out for every city uh, and reset the show each time we move. On a show like Hamilton, which has a, a large amount of resources, we do have a team that comes out for each move, but it's still very much up to the head of audio to to interpret the wishes of the sound designer in an artistic but also logistical way, figuring out how to how to merge the logistics of the venue with the artistic desires of the designer uh, to make the same show. It's not so much about making the same show as much as making the same feeling or experience for the audience um, from city to city so that you know, uh, the audience in one city is, is feeling like they've seen the same show, even if there's slight differences from another city. Um, and then in, so in the performance itself, I'm, I'm actively mixing the show. Uh, I, I, I feel very much like I am performing along with musicians or the actors. I have had conversations with actors in, in the show where, especially, you know, when they're singing a, a big, a big solo number, it feels like it feels like there's three of us performing that it's between myself and the music director and the and the actual actor who's who's performing it um and we've had really great discussions on that front and like we all are sort of pushing and pulling in each in directions and we want to make sure that we're pushing and pulling in directions that don't harm each other uh and so having those conversations is a is a great way of of expressing the the artistic choices I get to make. Do you want to talk a little bit more about this uh, idea that you were mentioning about being in different venues and not doing the same show but making it feel the same? Sure, you know, moving moving the show is tricky. Every venue has different acoustic characteristics. Uh, every venue has different logistical characteristics you know starting from just figuring out how to load the show in on time so that you actually have a show for the the audience to experience on usually on tuesday night yeah step one is that make sure you have a show and figuring out where the speakers get placed figuring out where the speakers get pointed and a lot of that stuff is figured out ahead of time from from plans and and uh, in cons consultation with the design team. And you know, like I said, a show like Hamilton has a lot of resources. So there's the design team, and there's an advanced team, and there's production audio. That like there's a lot of people who have uh, input and who do the work. So th those are sort of the first steps. And then you you spend quite a bit of time tuning the system. So you're listening to the to the sound system as you walk around the theater. And applying filters, EQ filters to the sound system, and uh, you have other sort of techniques to, like, you can repoint speakers, that sort of thing, to fill the space. And you're trying to make the space sound even. You know, you want all the seats to get the same experience, and you want the the space to get an experience of the show that allows them to enjoy the show. So. Understanding the words is is you know a huge a huge deal. Making sure that you have intelligibility throughout the whole space, and that I mean that's often one of the trickiest parts. Like some of the spaces we play are are extremely reverberant, and it's it's very easy to accidentally make the show too loud and therefore unintelligible because it just becomes a mishmash of sound. And so knowing how to have the right restraint in in those cases is important. So there's a, quite a bit of planning that goes into that. And then there's quite a bit of actual execution of walking around the house and listening 
and making changes to the sound system. And we have a lot of technological tools that let us do that. We have, you know, we'll walk, we'll often walk around with a, a wireless tablet or like an iPad or a, sometimes a, just a laptop that lets us interface with the, the sound system and, and lets us make changes uh, in EQ and, and other, other considerations to the sound system. It definitely varies uh, sort of by the, the, the level or the budget or the tier of the, of the show. I've been on some shows where I basically had an hour to do that. You know, Hamilton has more time uh, and a larger team. So there's, there's more people available to, to do it in that amount of time. But usually you're loading in in basically a day and a half on most shows. Uh, it's, it's anywhere from like kind of two days to basically a day. And we're sort of at the day and a half part mark here. But, uh, you know, a fair bit of that is just physically getting the show in the theater. You can't make sound until you have a constructed sound system. So once you have a sound system, then you start listening to it. And then there's always sort of a, a scheduling dance of when can I have, when, I, when can I have access to the theater to make sound, loud sound for an hour that is the only sound in the theater. Like I need to be able to make loud sound that will make it difficult for anyone else to work, but also I can't have anyone else working because it will throw off what I'm listening to. So uh, oftentimes you'll sort of figure out a way to have everyone else go to a meal and you'll get an hour while they're at a meal and then you take your own meal while they're back working. So there's lots of like scheduling considerations on that front. How long does that usually take you when, you, when you're loading in to, to do that sort of tuning of the system? In a perfect world, uh, all the theaters would be designed so that the seats had the same acoustic characteristics of an audience, but that never happens. Kevin, that reminds me at, um, <laughs> on so many plays that I do, you know, we're told like, you know, th this is the, the seating arrangement, you know, this is, we're given drawings, like this is where audience sits, this is where audience sits, and then we get into previews. And I've, I've learned my lesson very much since days of yore but you know you get into previews and then it's like and this row way 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 in the back is where you guys can sit and typically i'm moving around so i'm sitting within the audience i'm snagging a house seat so i'm further down but my director is way in the back basically out of range of the system so in days of yore i, ha I had to go like oh crap and then on like a, a few days into previews we'd have to install a delay system for the very back of the house, like very, very back of the house that wasn't even in the, in the plan. And it was irritating, but it's like, I'd rather that than getting notes from the director, like everything feels distant and quiet. Then correct me if I'm wrong, once the audience come in, that can be another factor, right? Like a big audience or a small audience, and you've got to react to the environment in the show. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's a thing. And and you'll sometimes hear about, especially like the, the concert halls that are very uh, acoustically thought out, will often have seats that are measured to uh, be very similar to an audience member in terms of their absorption characteristics. But there's still, it's, it's hard to make a seat sound exactly like an audience member. Of course, audience members come with uh, a noise floor of, of uh, breathing and sniffling and creaking seats and shuffling. Uh, and so there's the, the, they definitely bring a factor. And knowing how well sold the house is, uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate on this one that the house is almost always sold out. Uh, but on other shows, that is a consideration. And I'll, I will often try to go to management or to the box office if, if I'm told to just go straight to the box office and see 
you know, printouts of what is sold. You know, if we haven't even sold a, a whole section of the balcony, I don't want to send sound energy up there to just have it bounce around and muddy up the sound for other people. So that's, that's definitely a consideration that I try to address when possible, but you can't also, also you can't always address it. I, I played a, a house once where uh, there were some side boxes that I couldn't hit the side boxes and also effectively fill the balcony. And I knew that we were selling pretty well and that we would probably sell the balcony. And I asked someone in the house about these boxes and I, I told them about the troubles I was having. And they're like, nobody, we don't ever sell these boxes. They're, they're, they're not great sight lines. You know, they're just basically never used. Uh, but what they didn't mention was that there was one specific VIP in town who would sometimes come to shows and use one of those boxes uh, and uh, watch the show from there. And sure enough, they came to the show, but uh, they didn't hear great anyway. So there was not a, there wasn't a huge deal at that point, but just sort of knowing, knowing all the, the variables is a good thing for me ahead of time rather than being surprised by them. So, Elizabeth, how does this affect you and your work, uh, the idea of designing for a play that's going to be in just one place or that you know that's going to move around in different venues? I'm very big about, with my mix engineers, they get a moment where I or my associate take over the mix for, you know, 30, 45 minutes or so, so they can walk around the house and, and feel it for themselves, where it's like, actually, the actor is actually doing things. Because we can, yeah, we'll, we'll also put in like a monitor mix, uh, you know, position or a speaker for them. But it's nice for them to have a moment to just walk around and listen. So mo most of my shows tend to stay in one place. And as I say that, I can think of several that have like moved. They have maybe done so well that we need to put them into a bigger venue. It's They're doing a remount of it and putting it in a different space. I've had a couple of shows, yeah, that they decide like and actually we are going to do a tour of this so scratch what I said <laughs> to answer your question it's great to know beforehand if this show is going to move it's just great for planning purposes it doesn't always work out that way so a lot of what Kevin said rings true for what I do you know I'm still you know my associate Uh, and my team and I, we're mapping out what the system wants to be. We're doing this well in advance of technical rehearsals. Uh, we get to our system tuning day. And, you know, same, same as Kevin, like our big goal is uh, we have the system in place. Let's get this room sounding as even as possible. You know, the way a lot of theaters are, that might not be possible. Like this seat way up here because of architecture may sound very different from the seat, but we're really going to try to get things sounding as even as possible. Our big goal is uh, even spread. It's also intelligibility. Kevin, I liked what you were saying. You know, there's, there's a lot of times, you know, we'll get a note. Oh, I can't, I can't hear this actor. I want them louder. When actually the note is, I can't understand the actor because If it's, if it's all garbled and you're just making it louder, it's still garbled, but louder. That's not good. So a lot, yeah, a lot of my job is, is it's helping decipher some of those notes. I would never tell a director, no, that's not what you want. But I'd help them understand, hey, actually, I think there are a couple other things we need to tackle. And it's maybe not a level thing. And actually, uh, while we're not, 
we're not usually, you know, we're not noting ourselves and like we can be aware of our own system limitations. It's hard to mix if you're distant. So we actually have little speakers that we can install in our soundboard that give us just a little fill just to the mixer to, because no matter how many, how much I know that the system is louder for 99% of the audience, uh, it's still very hard to convince my brain to mix the show at the appropriate level. So we'll sometimes add those little speakers to, to make it easier for me to mix appropriately. I don't know, Kevin, if you've heard Nevin say this, I think it was Nevin who told me like most of his job is actually psychology. <laughs> and there's a little bit of sound in there. That's How do you cultivate that kind of learning? Is that through time, through experience? You know, that's that's certainly the, 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 the real sort of detailed skills that you guys develop over time, right? Um, being able to interpret what people are, somebody who doesn't understand sound and they're giving feedback and you're saying, okay, this is what they're saying, but they really mean this. Like that's a, that's a skill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of, one of the smartest things that I've heard about what it is that we do because sound is such a weird, intangible thing. Everyone has a different experience of it. It's, it's, colored by so many things i've worked with a few directors who have pretty profound hearing loss and we have to figure out yeah we have to figure out how to like compensate for that a lot of times with those directors there has to be a level of trust that they they know that i'm maybe i'm doing something a little more intimate that is not fully registering for them and they trust me completely it's a very that's and that that's probably a very scary thing for them. So it's like yes, like there's there's a level of skill I think you know Kevin and I have to to go you know not bluntly go like you're wrong. <laughs> it is this. I think it's a level of skill, it's some tact. Um and I think it's also trust. I you know, I'm I'm sure Kevin for you like, you know, talking with your team like when you first got brought on versus talking to your team now like you you all have built a level of trust together. So many layers to the job, really, isn't there, in terms of, of what you do? Because it's the, you know, going from your practical, logistics, the artistic, and then this other layer of, of managing those people. It's uh, And like you said, it, but people interpret and hear audio and sound in very different ways. And so it's not like people seeing the lighting or, you know, it's it's just an intangible thing. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I- I think that I think that trust is actually really the biggest component of it because if the director doesn't trust you, they're just going to think that you're bluffing your way through the problems when you're talking about sort of the nuance of it. And so building that trust uh, at all levels, uh, you know, I, I don't usually interface with the director, but I'm interfacing with the designer. So making sure that the designer and sound team all trust each other and then that the designer and the director trust each other all of those things are extremely valuable to allowing that sort of nuanced discussion to happen. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's not, not just sound effects. <laughs> and the other, the other layer of that, that uh, both Elishba and I have to deal with uh, is the trust between the performers and ourselves. You know, the performer has to trust that, especially, uh, I mean, this is especially true in musical theater. And, and I would imagine that, it's true throughout the realm that you know performers are performers are on stage and they're not hearing at all what 
what is good. You know, they're, they're not hearing the performance that we're creating for the audience. They're hearing their part of the audience. It would be like sitting in an orchestra right next to the oboe. And like, it's like, wow, this is a lot of oboe. Can you turn down the oboe? No, because once you're out in front of the orchestra, you get to hear the entire thing. And so the performers need to trust the designer and they need to trust the mixer that we're creating a performance that's good and that reflects well on them and, and showcases their talents. I would say that is the trickiest relationship that I have is making sure that the performers trust that I'm, I'm presenting them well and that when they ask to hear things, it, there's, it is common for them to ask to hear things that I can't let them hear. Like they often want to hear m more of themselves for sort of the, the comfort of knowing that they're singing the right notes, which is almost entirely psychological because they're already singing the right notes. They don't need to hear themselves, but they want to, they want that comfort and that, and that sort of reassurance that they're singing the right notes. And just because of physics, we can't let them, we can't let them hear that. They're wearing a microphone that is omnidirectional. And if we send their signal back to them, it will create feedback. It'll create squealing feedback. And so we have to say no to that, but we have to say no in a way that lets them know that we're aware of their concerns and understand their concerns and that, and that we'll let them know if their performance isn't right. Like, it, you know, if, if they're having pitch problems, we'll work with them and the music director to find the way to address those pitch problems, even if it's not giving them more of their own voice back to them. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, in those instances, it's like, so listen, know this, but let me let me tell you what I can offer you. So I'm thinking about, you know, you know, in West Side Story, I did a production of that where it's like, no, I can't send voice to you. But in this moment, the piano is doing this thing that I think if I send you a little more of that, that's actually going to be the key thing that helps you. So yeah, it's a careful dance, like with the performers, uh, you know, the music director. I love, you know, a good music director can be your best friend. So I try and get them on my team as quickly as possible. <laughs> How do you address all this when you change genres? Like saying if you're working with an orchestra or musicals, as you mentioned, or if you're in a concert or a festival or just straight theater or private events. I don't know if you've worked in some of those. I guess we all have. So how, how does it change? I guess for me, I mean, I've worked almost entirely in musical theater for most of my time but I have done some concerts I've done like benefits with the with the cast of my of the musical I'm working on so like we'll go out and do like a benefit concert at another venue and I'll come and do sound for that and in those cases that is 100% about the trust that I've already built with them uh mixing the musical that then they'll they'll have the same experience you know hopefully they can have the same experience at that benefit of oh I, i'm not hearing myself but i know that you know kevin's out there and that it's sounding fine i worked for a, like a sort of a theatrical circus for a while and they were having trouble they had a sort of a star performer who was like a pop star and that performer wasn't having a great experience sound wise in this performance And so uh, I, I flew out kind of at the last minute just to like see what I could do to help. And it was, it was 100% psychological of just like making that person feel like the most important person in the room. And very little sound change had to be made. So I, I would say that just sort of continuing this, the theme of psychology through uh, many genres is helpful.
it's just psychology. A lot of it is like it's it's taking care of your people, be it the performers, uh, be it the rest of your sound team. Uh, it's just it's taking care of people from you know gig to gig, whatever genre uh, uh, entertainment you are doing. Yeah, and people, you know, I've learned for me the the big thing is that people just want to know that they are being heard, they are being listened to. I think that fixes so many things, like just kind of cuts things off right at the pass. Is is if they feel listened to, it it things don't escalate in weird, <laughs> unmanageable ways. It's very important to me, you know, if I have you know monitors set up over the stage or backstage, that I am also putting ears on them, that I am listening to what the actors are listening to. I want to make sure, kind of that first day of tech, that they feel taken care of in monitor world. I think that's really important. Yeah, just listening to people, not saying no, saying, hmm, I hear you. What if we did this? No is a tricky word in theater entertainment. I don't like, I don't love saying it. And people don't like hearing it either. (laughs) People hate hearing it. (laughs) It doesn't matter what craft we do in theatre. Indeed, all around. People don't like hearing it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So guys, what's your what's your favorite uh thing about your job? What's your what's your most favorite part when you're when you're at your at your best in terms of what you enjoy? I hate all of it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely there's a few things that I really enjoy. Sort of the interaction with the performers is great, feeling the crowd, but the, the definitely the top thing is the sense of flow that happens when I'm mixing is super magical. You know, like I said, it's sort of like playing an instrument and playing an instrument with with a bunch of other performers who are, you know, really some of the best in the world uh, is is pretty magical. And and it's it's a uh, yeah the feeling of flow is 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 awesome. And on the back of that, do you have a favorite show that you've mixed? Oh, I mean, Hamilton has been has been my dream job since I saw Hamilton on Broadway. So uh, it's definitely Hamilton, which is you're living the dream, Kevin. I'm in you're it. In it. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it feels kind of gross to say, but it's it's true. <laughs> pandemic. We just need the pandemic to go away now, so you can go back. <laughs> And you, Alicia? So to answer your question, so it's it's like what what's my favorite part? I'm gonna I'm gonna push back a little and go. First off, the most tense part of my job is when we start tech. It's the first hour. What is that? Hour ten? Hour twenty? Until the first equity break? What is that? Hour ten? Um, that first hour ten is so stressful because we're putting together our language that we're going to use for the rest of tech and the rest of previews. We're trying to figure out how we as a team talk to each other. And that is for me, like the most tense, stressful time. It determines so many things. So I'm getting better about that first block of time before the first equity break. But you know, it's a very, it's a very intense time for me. So I love tech rehearsals after that moment, after that first hour, 10, hour 20, when we come back from break. And then, yeah, like my most favorite thing is just that moment when we're, especially with a lighting designer, where we're like, and I guess with, with all elements, like we're working on like a cue, a transition, 
And then all the elements just come together. And then suddenly it's like, whoa, look at this cue. It's so amazing. We did it, you guys. Knowing, knowing that it's going to shift in previews, but that first moment where it's like, we made a really beautiful thing that also tells the story. I love moments like that. If you could change anything about how your specific jobs or disciplines work or how the industry works, what would you change? I, I, think, we both, I think we both have a list. I bet there's an awful lot of overlap. <laughs> yeah, this is a whole other episode. Sounds like Kevin's got a list. Kevin's got a list. Should we should we extend the podcast time? <laughs> <laughs> this, I mean, I, I have a feeling this will probably be some back and forth. This might trigger some things for us, but like you know, for me, the first thing that came to mind is is ten out of twelves. We've just got to we've got to do away with them. Explain to me what a ten out of twelves. I don't know. I'm... A ten out of twelve. It's a it's a twelve hour day. There's a two hour dinner break in there, and you are go go going for those 10 hours and you're go, go, go during your dinner break. That's what happens for sound designers. It's, it's maybe the first time the theater is really quiet and I'll try and like sneak in some programming, listening time in there. It means that my team got in, you know, if it's a 12 o'clock start, my team was there at like maybe 10 AM, maybe earlier to probably earlier to, you know, tackle the list of notes that generated were generated from the night before to, you know, this speaker is crapping out on us. Well, let's take it down. Uh, yeah, we need to like get this new driver in. Let's get it up. So I have a team that's been there since maybe 8 a.m. So by noon, the start of tech, they're already a little dead. <laughs> and so certainly by midnight, they are wiped. I'm wiped. You know, that's where you start to get into people just not being very pleasant. It's just a very, I think 10 out of 12s, I must say it, are really toxic. I don't think anything good happens after around 10, 10.30 p.m. on a night like, on a day like that. I think we should do away with them. Kevin, when I was in San Francisco, I was working at ACT, and they, I don't know if it's a hard and fast rule for them, no 10 out of 12s, but on that show with the artistic director directing, Pam McKinnon, you know, her big thing was we do not do 10 out of 12s on my shows. And it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, most, most shows still do 10 out of 12s. There's often, you know, depending on the length of your tech process, but there, there could easily be a week of them. And that's, you know, a week of 16 hour days for the crew. It's, you know, cause it's a 12 hour day for the actors, but it's usually uh, 8 a.m. or like, like if you're if you're granted a 9 a.m. call the next morning, that's that's like a luxury during that week. And just like Alicia says, it's toxic. It brings out the worst in people in all sorts of ways. It's it's a way to I guess extract a little bit more work, uh, you know, out of a limited time period. But it's weird because it feels like the work is lower quality. It still is enormously expensive for the producers because. Uh, at least for, you know, like union stagehands, it's, we almost get another week's salary because of all the penalties that, that, that get run into that week. So it's just like, just schedule another week and have, and have two weeks of, 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 you know, sane amounts of, of time. Um, so yeah, I'm right there with you and definitely eliminating the 10 out of 12 rehearsal is something that a lot of people have been talking about in, especially now that we're sort of like trying to rethink how the industry can become a little bit 
healthier and more inclusive and, and just better for everyone. And that's one of the topics of discussion, one of many topics of discussion. So currently that's legal and, and a, a union approved, I guess. And also, but is there a limit to how many days? You said that you that you could do that all week, right? Is there a limit to how many times they can do that? Because I'm, I'm not familiar to union rules. There are very few actual limits in, in the union contracts. There's mostly penalties. And if a producer can budget in for those penalties, they can basically do what they want. Uh, smart producers will understand that penalties don't make up for sanity and for mental health. And so you can, you can pay all the, you know, there's a seventh day penalty. If you don't have, if you don't have a day off in a week, if you have to work seven days in a week, as opposed to the usual six day week, which is hilarious because a six day week is already a day longer than most other industries consider normal. The producer can just pay a seventh day penalty and, and have us work seven days a week. I've been on a tour where the producer budgeted in for a seventh day every week. And so we moved every week. So we worked mo- every Monday, which means that we didn't have a day off for months. You know, the the most time off that we had was the Thursday, Friday during the day before having a show that night. So there are very few actual hard and fast rules. They're mostly penalties that the producers are able to budget in for. And one of the things, the things that I would love to see, and I've I've mentioned in some union negotiations, and it's 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 never it always seems to be a non-starter is that penalties that can be budgeted for are no longer penalties, and so what they need to do is have the penalties multiply. So if you have no day off this week and you get, and the producer has to pay a penalty of like a sixth and a half of your weekly salary as, as a penalty for that, the next week they should have to pay a penalty of two sixths. And the next week, you know, maybe four sixths, like have it multiply or whatever. That's a way to, to it's, it's hard to make rules in a contract because sometimes you legitimately have emergencies or super tight schedules that just can't be solved. And it's sometimes it's nice to have the ability to, to solve that in a way with money, but it usually sucks for everyone. And uh, it would be nice to just make that more difficult to, to just be like, we'll just throw a little bit more money at it. Yeah. That's, that's insane. Absolutely insane to think about not getting a break from weeks on end. Right. Yeah. That's just that's just the the one thing we want to change in the industry. We have a whole list more, right? I started writing oh, a good. list. Yeah, I just started writing a list. Do you want to, do you want to hear my list? Yes. Yes. Hit us. Hit it. Hit us. Hit us with your list. This is just you know. I'm sure Kevin will have a couple because uh, not this is definitely not the full list. I love that you've just written a list while he's been, Kevin's been talking. <laughs> no, it just it just triggers because there's a lot of conversation right now. Kevin's right about you know, we're, we're on pause right now. And when we come back, we can't come back to a lot of the same practices. We've, we've got to figure out how to like dismantle some, some pretty awful toxic stuff that's been happening. And so like, yeah, how do we rebuild it? You know, I would love to see right now, especially within like my, within design world, within my union, you know, we're having big conversations about harassment and uh, abusive, yeah, toxic things that happen right now like reporting policies are not they're not really a thing it's we are coming from a culture that's like just kind of like grin and bear it that is not a very inclusive way to do things what that means is that you know that straight white men were always going to get ahead and that everyone else has to kind of put up with toxicity so 
you know, there's been more of a movement within our union, within other unions I know, to figure out better harassment and abuse reporting policies. Because typically you're supposed to report it to your employer. But with us, who are freelancers, we get into a tricky, tricky back and forth as to, well, but they don't want to, the employer doesn't want to claim this. They don't want to tackle this, but our union doesn't want to tackle this. So that's a big thing that I would love to just figure out right now, but it's going to take a little while, but it's something that's actively being worked on. Can I add to that? Yeah, please, please. Just one one thing about that is that most theaters, even even when uh, the, the relationship is clearly between an employer and an employee, there's still not an HR department for most theater companies. And so the reporting is like through your direct management and it becomes awkward. Like, hey, I want to report, you know, if, if, if a person of color wants to talk about microaggressions coming from stage management, who do they talk to? Like they, they have no one to talk to. And even if it's not, even if it's not in a, in a way that they want to confront that they just want to address to like, they don't want the person to be fired. They just want the person to stop making these microaggressions. There's no, there's no one for them to talk to. So there's definitely discussion. Um, and some companies are implementing, actually having an HR department that, that provides another path for, for discussions and complaints like that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so weird because yeah, theater is this culture that's like, we're weird and that's cool. What it means is like with long hours and, you know, situations where we're just kind of on top of each other. The other thing I want to address is drinking culture. It just means that we are, we are like ripe for really toxic, awful situations. And there's got to be better. There's got to be, yeah, what Kevin's saying is HR. There's got to be like theater HR, which is, which is not a thing in most places. And it's starting to become a thing. There's starting to become some awareness of this. Yeah. And so another thing I would love to like tackle, dismantle, figure out how to redo is theater is all about drinking. And I'm someone who back in the day was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. More and more that that has become like not appealing to me. I, I understand now that in uh, a system that, you know, theater is something that like I am a designer and I'm bringing on these assistants. I am bringing on these interns. What it means is like, if we're all like sitting at a bar and we're drinking, drinking, getting drunk, strange things can happen regarding, you know, control, power. And I think that drinking culture, we've just got to like refigure this out. It, it, I don't love the idea of us like all going to the bar to hang out, to decompress. For, for you know, me, myself, when we were not in pandemic times, if I was meeting with a younger person, I needed to acknowledge that I am the one who actually has more power in this situation. Let's meet for a coffee. Let's go get a bagel. Let's get a kombucha. But I'd rather, I'd rather we not meet at a bar. I know that <laughs> when I've brought this up to people, I've had some people be like, eh, and I get it. I get it. Drinking is fun. I'd love to figure out a way where it is not about theater. I guess it is part of the culture. And like you said, if it's not, you don't want to be excluded from the gang if you don't like to be doing that in your post-show or, you know, as the thing. And I think that's, that's an, it's it's not like, it is an important issue if if somebody doesn't feel like they fit in because they're not part of that, that culture, you know. I'll actually say that. So I, I don't drink and I haven't, I have never drank. Uh, it's definitely been, uh, and you know, a little bit of an issue. Like, like people are like weirded out that that I don't, or um, that I don't want to go and hang out at bars. Like, it's definitely, it's definitely a thing. And I mean, I have, I have plenty of other <laughs> advantages that make it easier for me to sort of navigate some of these these issues. 
being a straight white guy, one of them. Uh, but it's definitely an issue, and it's an issue that just should, just shouldn't be an issue. Like it's easy enough to fix. Like it shouldn't be a thing. It should yeah. not be a thing. That's a, that's the point, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's something I never thought about until Elishba mentioned it at one point. Uh, and so I'm, I'm grateful to Elishba and people for bringing it up because it's it's not even something I had really noticed was a thing until until she mentioned it to me one time. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, there's like all these. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm grateful for people bringing that up. Anything else on that list, Elishba? I mean, I, I had a, just like a, a mom slash families thing that I haven't even fully fleshed that out because, you know, I had a baby and then I was supposed to go into text for two shows back to back and then everything happens. And so I don't I don't know what it's like to be, uh, you know, a mom with a young baby in theater just yet. I do know that the theaters I was about to work with were being so good and cool about what is it that you will need? We will help you with that. Because what I needed was not necessarily like anything that would cost a ton of money. It was these theaters, um, like, yeah, just point blank asking me, what, what do you need? Even if you haven't thought of it, we've had a few like mom, parent, artists, and here's, here's what we think you might need. And I hope that theaters, it, it was just, it was so beautiful to hear that. And I hope that more theaters are thinking of that. You know, something I, I've been thinking about is like, my gosh, like whenever we come back and if I'm still pumping, you know, I, I guess I'll just have to do it at the tech table while we're teching because a 10 minute break doesn't cover a pumping session. We're talking at least, you know, 25, 30 minutes for active pumping. And then I need to clean the pump parts. And that takes a while. And it's like, how am I going to do that? So, and I'm sure there are some theaters that are like, we actually have a plan for that. But when we all come back, I, you know, figuring out, yeah, yeah, how to, it's just how to make, how to make this more inclusive overall, how to make this. So right now the schedule is such that, you know, it, this is tough on parents. This is tough on anyone who is disabled. This is tough on, this is tough on a lot of people. Yeah, and there's not a lot of accommodations or especially when you talk about the schedules that, you know, you're running, <laughs> Kevin, like how do you be a mum in that environment? And it's, um, it, it is something that is, a, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent too and, and I've been in a fortunate situation that having two, two children in, in a very supportive environment has been a wonderful situation. But I know that other people, other women in my realm have held off from having kids because they felt that it would or they feel like they can't continue their career in the same way. And what you don't really want is women and men, for example, as well, to feel that they have to put off becoming parents because of this industry. Like we should feel like we can do both and we should have an industry where that is supported and welcomed. And that's, I mean, those three things that you, those things that you brought up are amazing issues to address. And, but I think that talking about them is, the first step, right, and then identifying where the issues are and then starting a pathway to change the culture because you can change policies. It doesn't change the culture, right, especially with the drinking or the sexual harassment or anything. Change what's what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and then creating that space. Um, and it starts with the awareness. So thank you for bringing those issues up. I think that's really important for us to to really put it out there. 
we're going to have to trigger that with other podcast people, Anna. We're going to that was I, I I'm going to I'm going to lay it down. That is the best answer for the changing your job or the industry that we've had thus far. And I'm also going to remember that the, the, the seat cannot be an audience member quote for a very long time. <laughs> can I just can I just also follow up that like all of the I feel like all of the topics that that we talked about all really are all really sort of facets of the of the of the biggest thing, which is that most of these things wouldn't be issues if the staff at all levels was more diverse. Like if there were more people in management who had the experience of having children, who were women, who were parents, there's certainly people who are actively racist and actively sexist and actively like discriminatory in the world. But so much of it is through ignorance and just and just an unwillingness to try to consider the experience the life experiences of people who aren't like you and one way to address that is to make sure that you're in a room with people who aren't like you and who can who can figure that out and so like it feels like i mean i feel like i'm saying the obvious and certainly alicia knows this we've had plenty of discussions on this front uh but like but but all of these things can be addressed by by starting with making the system more diverse and that's i mean that's a like just make the system more diverse that's a that's a huge task it has to happen at all levels there's there's discrimination that's that's preventing existing women and people of color from getting work but there's also uh you know there's there's everything i've heard people talk about like oh there's no pipeline issue we have existing people who are talented which is true, but also we should improve the pipeline of, of people who are from diverse backgrounds coming into the work. Like we can do all the things and we should do all the things. And, um, and so I definitely encourage, I definitely encourage, uh, you know, if anyone who is like me as a straight white man, who's listening to this podcast, have these conversations in the rooms that you're in, where, which are all straight white men, because like, this is an easy, isn't is an easy topic to have, a topic of discussion to have in 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 a room where it's women or people of color but like uh i've brought this up in in zoom calls with all straight white people and it's it is it is definitely it feels like i threw a grenade into the room and backed off for a minute uh to watch what happened after that it, because because those are the places that those conversations aren't ha- happening and they, that's where they need to happen the most so i'm just going to say that out to my fellow privileged people out there <laughs> have those conversations I appreciate you, Kevin. I think that's a wonderful statement. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, uh, we we want to thank you guys. And I don't know if you want to share with us your websites or pages where people can look at your wonderful jobs and, and the work you've done. Yeah, uh, you know, you can check me out at alishabaetoop.com. So E-L-I-S-H-E-B-A-I-T-T-O-O-P.com. And Kevin? Yeah, I'm at kevin-mccoy.com, K-E-V-I-N-M-C-C-O-Y.com. Mine is mostly just contact, methods of contact for me, but I'm very open to people getting in touch with me and talking about anything, preferably job-related, but also I'll talk about space. I like talking about space, so contact me. And I'm also happy, I'm especially happy to talk to young people in the industry and answer questions and help you get in touch with other cooler people than me. And uh, piggy, piggyback off of that, I'm happy, you know, if you, especially if you're a younger person out there and you, if you want to chat, yeah, hit me up. 
especially I'm very interested in talking to young uh, BIPOC designers. I will gladly make time for you. Fantastic. I really enjoyed this conversation today, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Please write our review on our podcast, whatever you listen to your podcast, and let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Live by visiting our website at www.theatreartlive.com. And you can also follow us on social media and leave your questions and comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Girata, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life Podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create life entertainment around the world. <laughs>